Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning, and thank you for joining the 2020 Protecting Children in Education Summit. I am Emily Gao, the director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation, and I will be your MC today. Before we get started, we have a few housekeeping notes. Throughout our virtual summit, you can access program information and resources on the same website through which you registered. We will send that link to you through the chat now. If you would like to submit questions, and we hope that you do, please do so via the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation so that we know a little bit more about who you are and who is where you're tuning in from. Last and not least, since we are all dialing in from our homes, we ask for your patience in case there are minor technical issues or outside noises. We're so honored that over 1,700 people have registered for the summit from Nebraska to Nigeria. We know that as well as policymakers, we are joined today by parents, grandparents, and even great-grandparents. You are from both liberal and conservative political backgrounds, and you're all here for one reason, which is to protect children. Every child should have a chance to get an education that is free from sexually explicit materials that the 10 o'clock news wouldn't even show. And every parent should be able to wave goodbye to their child in the morning without having to worry that their child will be taught medically unsound theories in school. And then information will be withheld if their child is distressed about their gender. Unfortunately, children are being exposed to graphic sexual materials and parents are being kept in the dark. Our panels will explain how this is happening and what you can do about it. And since you are also likely dialing in from home, we want to caution you that some topics that will be discussed today are not appropriate for young listeners. So please keep that in mind. And now I would like to invite my colleague, Angela Saylor, the Vice President of the Edwin Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation to give her remarks. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Emily. Well, good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation's Protecting Children in Education Summit. Our President Kay Coles James and my colleagues, Dr. Charmaine Yost and Emily Gao, are so delighted that parents, faith leaders, policymakers, and citizens from all around the country and the world have joined us today. As Emily said, my name is Angela, and I say to you, my most important job that I've ever had is mother. I have two beautiful children, and I get up each day prepared to do battle against anyone and anything that threatens their future, their opportunities, and their freedoms. Today, each and every person who is joined here has made a decision to act like the elephants and band together against the threat of comprehensive sexuality education. There are those who have or would like to scatter us like zebras 
so that they can isolate our young and destroy them one by one. This movement that wants to pick our children off one by one shows up in classrooms, both virtually and in person, to introduce children as young as kindergarten to sexual information under the guise of curricula. There is a bullying power through school policies that infringe on students' rights and parental rights for those of us who hold the belief that we are created male and female, and for those of us who believe marriage is between a man and a woman. These policies and curricula are not an accident. They are the fruit of deliberate efforts of activists, the United Nations, and federal and state policymakers as well as local school boards. Our experts today will tell you, hands down, parents know best when it comes to the needs of their children. Students' mental, emotional, and physical health are threatened by curriculum policies that promote early sexualization, as well as radical medical interventions with irreversible side effects. Civil society has joined forces to ensure that what we think is best for our families, our communities, and our nation is preserved. The Heritage Foundation has partnered with Alliance Defending Freedom, the California Family Council, the Family Policy Alliance, the Family Research Council, the Family Watch International, and the Massachusetts Family Institute to form a new coalition called the Protecting Children Coalition. That coalition together with each of you has built so much momentum to fight against sexualization of children across this nation. As citizens, we wanna protect our children. And if we do, we must get up each day being very intentional. How? Well, we need to do three things. One, we need to find out what curriculum is being taught in the classroom. We need to find out what policies are being adopted that infringe on students' and parents' rights. And three, we need to network and make our voices heard at all levels, from local school boards to state legislators to Congress. Let's take our passion and pair it with a better understanding of the threats of comprehensive sexuality education in every state the threats of the Equality Act, the threats of gender ideology, and the threats against parental rights. It is our hope that each of you will leave this experience more equipped with the tools, the resources, and effective steps for protecting our children from the radical comprehensive sexual education agenda. Emily, back to you. Thank you so much, Angela. And now I would like to introduce our next speaker, Michael Ferris, the Chief Executive Officer of Alliance Defending Freedom, one of the partners in the Protecting Children Coalition. Hi, I'd like to uh, extend my warm greetings to all of you that are participating in this important video conference. Uh, we long for the day that we can all be back in person together again, but in the meantime, we have much work to do and I'm uh, really happy to be a part of what you're doing here uh, on, on this series of, of video sessions. The uh, topic, of course, is the protection of children through empowering parents. Uh, tradition, history, 
my own life shows that the best way to protect kids is through parents. Um, as the father of 10 kids and grandfather of 26 and growing, I'm very interested in seeing kids uh, be protected. And I know that parents' rights are an important component of the protection of children. In fact, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States in 1978 made a very important ruling. It's a case called J.R. versus Parham. And I'm going to read you a, a couple of paragraphs from that decision because they really set the stage for the proper understanding of parental rights and the protection of children. I quote, Our jurisprudence historically has reflected Western civilization concepts of the family as a unit with broad parental authority over minor children. Our cases have consistently followed that course. Our constitutional system long ago rejected any notion that a child is the mere creature of the state, and on the contrary, asserted that parents generally have the right, coupled with a high duty, to recognize and prepare their children for additional obligations. As with so many other legal presumptions, the court continued, experience and reality may rebut what the law accepts as the starting point. The incidents of child neglect and abuse cases attest to this, that some parents may at times be acting against the interests of their children creates a basis for caution, but it's hardly a reason to discard wholesale those pages of human experience that teach that parents generally do act in the child's best interest. The statist notion that governmental power should supersede parental authority in all cases because some parents abuse and neglect their children is repugnant to American tradition. That's the legal framework that the Supreme Court has recognized is good for children. Now those in our current environment who want to sexualize children understand the power of public education. The experience, historical experience and recent experience has shown that governments can manipulate the educational process to change students' worldviews and their values. The whole world figured out that giving government that kind of power over children's minds, hearts, and values was a bad idea, and that they wanted to prevent the ability of any government to ever be able to, again, pervert the minds of a generation of children. That's why in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted unanimously by the General Assembly of the United Nations in the late 1940s, said, and I quote, parents have a prior right to choose the kind of education that shall be given their children. This was carried out in more detail by the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, a UN treaty that followed up on the Universal Declaration. And it says in detail that parents can ensure that they can choose an alternative form of education precisely so that the values of the children will match the values of the parents, not the values of the government. Why is this good for children? Well. The reason is simple. Parents do what's good for children far more often than governments do. When governments try to manipulate children's minds, it is bad for children and historically it's been proven it is bad for humanity. Governments never love, ever. They may exercise kindness, they may exercise other virtuous things, but only parents are truly capable of loving children in the way that is inbred by God. 
parents almost always love their children. Again, there are those exceptions, but we do not abandon the vast majority of human experience simply because there are a few uh, exceptions to this God-given uh, rule and duty. Children are not protected by love, by bureaucracy, or by utopian schemers. This conference has set out for itself a great goal of protecting children, to protect children from those who will change their values, change their lives, and not in a good direction, because they want to create a sexualized utopia of their imaginations. Their imaginations are not good, and we urge you to stay the course, to increase your efforts, and we hope that you'll be very successful in what you set out to do. God bless you, and I wish you all the success in this conference and in the days ahead. Thank you. Now I would like to introduce the next panel, which is International, Federal, and State Initiatives, Efforts to Sexualize Children Through School Curriculum. I'd like to invite all of the speakers to join me on screen now. First, we will hear from Andrew Beckwith, the president of the Massachusetts Family Institute. Then we will hear from Dr. Ryan Anderson, the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in, America, in the DeVos Center in, at the Heritage Foundation. And then finally, we will hear from Sharon Slater, the president of Family Watch International. This panel will inform you about the relationship between state, federal, and international laws and policies that lead to comprehensive sexuality education as well as sexual orientation and gender identity policies and curriculum. It will include discussion of both the impacts on public and private school students. Without further ado, please go ahead, Andrew. Well, thank you, Emily. It's, uh, it's an honor to be able to address this crowd of parents this morning. I'm doing that from my office here, uh, just outside of Boston. We serve as a local associate in Massachusetts for Focus on the Family, Family Research Council, and Alliance Defending Freedom. And it's in this office that I get phone calls almost weekly during the school year from parents who are just scandalized by what their children have been exposed to in the public schools when it comes to sexual health education. Um, and what I tell these parents is that you need to know what the current law is in Massachusetts, because here in the Commonwealth, like many other states, parents have a right to opt their children out of the sexual health education. But unfortunately, that's not where the knowledge of the law has to end. In Massachusetts, there is statewide legislation uh, that is geared towards actually implementing the types of radical, hypersexualized, anti-family curricula into every school in the Commonwealth. It would mandate it. And we've been fighting that for years now, and parents need to be aware of that. And what I, what I think the parents and the activists on this call need to know is that you really have to kind of get into the weeds or find an organization like the state family policy councils across the country who've done that work on the state legislation, state laws, so you know what you're up against because knowledge is power. For example, here in Massachusetts, the bill that would take control away from parents and local school districts over the choice of sex ed curricula is called an act relative to healthy youth. That sounds pretty innocuous. Who would be against healthy youth? And the terminology in the bill itself says that it would require uh, sex ed curriculum to be medically accurate and age appropriate. Well, again, on the, on the surface, that sounds great. But when you actually read through the bill and parse through the language and see what it does, you realize that those terms, uh, medically accurate, age appropriate, are not defined 
in any meaningful sense in the bill. What it does is it cedes authority from the local school districts and gives it to the State Department of Education. So instead of parents, teachers, health professionals in a community deciding what's best together for the children in that community, you have a one-size-fits-all uh, platform coming down from the state bureaucrats. So I went to the uh, website for the Massachusetts Department of Education, and I found what curricula they had already deemed was age-appropriate and medically accurate. And one of the curricula they recommended is this one here. It's called the Get Real Curricula. You can see that logo down at the bottom. That's Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts. So our state bureaucrats say that this type of curricula uh, is appropriate, age-appropriate, for seventh graders. And it's medically accurate. So I, I read through it. My staff and I went through this curricula line by line, the whole middle school curriculum. We didn't even get to high school. We just focused on middle school to start. And we found things there that I can't even really fully describe on this, uh, on this webcast, since there may be children around. Um, but to put it this way, in the seventh grade curriculum, for children who are potentially as young as 12 years old, this curricula recommends or and teaches kids how to use saran wrap, saran wrap, specifically non-microwavable saran wrap, uh, as an oral prophylactic for non-reproductive acts. Just kind of leave it at that. I don't think I can really say any more. Um, so that is clearly not appropriate for the age of 12. Before I did this job, I was a prosecutor in the Marine Corps, and I handled my fair share of sexual assault cases. And there are things that Planned Parenthood wants to teach our 12-year-olds that I hadn't even heard of before I started going through their curriculum. And I don't know if saran wrap as a prophylactic is medically accurate. So when you hear these terms, um, and you will hear them, if you go to your school uh, committee or, or to the principal of your school to talk about what's right for your kids, they may use these terms. Uh, don't be dissuaded. There are resources out there. You'll learn a lot about different resources today that will empower and equip you to go to your schools and to go to your state house with the knowledge you need to fight for your kids and preserve their purity. So I think I'm just about out of time, but I look forward to participating in this panel and answering any questions that come up. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Andrew. Please go ahead, Ryan. Great, thank you. Um, so what I've been asked to um, address this morning is how the federal government um, could impact the curriculum of your local school. And uh, to a certain extent, you might think, well, wait, the federal government can't do that in the American system of government where we have dual sovereignty between the federal government and the 50 states. Curricula issues are matters for the states. This isn't a federal question. In fact, there are three congressional statutes that explicitly say that the federal government can't be um, regulating, mandating uh, the curricula at the uh, public school level, uh, that this is something for the local government, for the state government, not for the federal government. President Trump has issued an executive order reiterating those three congressional statutes. You think that I could be done, turn off the webcam, and my section of this program is over, uh, but that's not the end of the story, because nevertheless, what the federal government can do is impose um, various forms of uh, sexual education particularly sexual orientation and gender identity education under the guise of civil rights law. Uh, and what they will say is that this is a form of protecting a school environment that is free from discrimination and harassment based on sex 
where sex will now be redefined to mean sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, so what, what could this look like? Uh, let me give you three um, uh, concrete things to look for. I don't think there's a great chance of any of these three things happening at the federal level under the current administration. But I do think that with a change of administration, I do think that with a change of Congress, um, these could all be live uh, options in our future. Uh, so first is that if um, uh, if it was possible, if, if Congress, if the composition of Congress were to change, and if the occupant of the White House were to change, we could see the Equality Act become law. Uh, the Equality Act, it's passed the House of Representatives and it's going nowhere in the current Senate. Uh, but what the Equality Act does is it adds that phrase, sexual orientation and gender identity, to our existing civil rights laws. Uh, so our laws that ban discrimination on the basis of race, that ban discrimination on the basis of sex, will now also ban discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, this would apply to Title II of the Civil Rights Act, which um, uh, regulates public accommodations. This would apply to Title IV of the Civil Rights Act, which regulates public education. It would apply to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which is a general funding, anyone who receives general uh, funding from the government. And then it also would apply to Title IX of the Education Amendments, uh, which banned discrimination on the basis of sex in education. So while not directly mandating a particular curriculum, uh, it could say that your current curriculum violates civil rights uh, because it has bias against LGBT identified people. Um, all of the uh, uh, people in your history month are uh, straight cisgender males. And so you need to have more uh, transgender and polygender and gender neutral and gender ambidextrous people. You need to have curricula for uh, LGBT Pride Month, for example. Um, another way in which they could do this is to say, look, we have problems on campus. Students are misgendering each other. Uh, some students are saying um, that a boy can't really be trapped in a girl's body. And that's a violation of civil rights. It's creating a hostile uh, learning environment. And so we need to uh, indoctrinate students to believe the new orthodoxy about sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, their dear colleague letters from the previous uh, administration from the Department of Education saying that part of preventing discrimination and harassment on the basis of sex would include educational programs so that teachers, parents, and students can both identify unlawful discrimination and harassment and effectively respond to it. And so you can see a variety of, of programs going on at the school level, and this is K through 12 through the collegiate level on what it would mean to discriminate or harass someone on the basis of their gender identity. Um, and it's not things that are um, truly objectionable, things that everyone on this, on this conference today would object to, uh, but things as simple as saying that boys shouldn't compete in girls' athletic competitions, or boys shouldn't use uh, girls' bathrooms, or um, uh, I'm not gonna use a new pronoun that goes against the truth of the human body, right? Um, those would be instances of discrimination or harassment, and so the educational program would need to teach the truth of gender being fluid, of gender existing along a spectrum, of the reality of sex reassignment procedures, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that's how the other side sees the truth of these matters. I obviously think these things are, uh, uh, are entirely false. And yet that's how children 
will be taught to believe what the truth of the matter is. So that's all through the Civil Rights Act, but uh, let me mention the second part uh, that I wanna highlight is even if Congress doesn't act on this, a hostile administration could simply do it under their own authority. We saw this in the very last months of the Obama administration. In May of 2016, they issued a Dear Colleague letter saying that the word sex in Title IX now meant gender identity, and so schools had to redo bathrooms, locker rooms, sports, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in the aftermath of the Bostock decision, uh, they're going to have all the more uh, justification, uh, not that they actually have that justification, but as a rhetorical talking point, they're going to say, look, Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch said under Title VII, our employment law, sex now includes gender identity and transgender status. And so we're now saying at the regulatory level, at the executive branch level, that sex now means gender identity. And so you have to redo all these uh, campus policies, but then also you're going to have to ensure that the learning environment is free from discrimination and harassment. And so there's going to need to be uh, um, uh, lessons plans and policies to teach students about civil rights. Right. So again, it's not going to be explicitly about the curriculum. They know that would run afoul of of the law saying you can't have the federal government messing with the curriculum. They'll do it as civil rights protection. The last thing I want to mention, and then I'm going to be out of time is that students, especially young students, learn much more uh, through kind of campus culture than they do through explicit kind of blackboard instruction. Um, and I think this is true about humanity in general. Uh, we learn a lot more by picking up social cues, by picking up what is the um, campus procedures and policies, and not so much only what is professor so-and-so or teacher so-and-so saying in front of the classroom at the lectern at the blackboard. And so part of this is going to be that if the school simply treats gender as if it's fluid, as if it exists along a spectrum, if the school has locker room policies and bathroom policies and sports policies that embody the belief that gender exists along a spectrum and that uh, it's fluid, students are going to pick that up. So even if there's never any explicit curriculum that teaches this, there's never any explicit civil rights violation prevention teaching that teaches this, simply how the school environment itself, uh, um, the ecosystem of the school, is going to shape and form and mold the beliefs of those students. Uh, and so this is something that parents uh, need to watch out for at all levels. And uh, uh, in particular, I'm just going to say that uh, uh, elections have consequences. And what happens in the Congress, what happens in the White House, uh, could impact what's happening at your local school. Thank you, Ryan. I also wanted to point out Ryan's book, When Harry Became Sally, which is an excellent resource to learn more about the truth from medicine and science about transgender ideology. Now I'd like to turn the time over to Sharon Slater, the head of Family Watch International. Thank you, Emily. I'm really grateful for the comments that preceded me, and I'm grateful to the Heritage Foundation for organizing this. I'm gonna take you through some very troubling developments um, regarding comprehensive sexuality education and what they're teaching children at the international, national, and local and state levels. And then I'm gonna give you some quick action steps that you can easily do to help protect children. 
So Family Watch International works to protect children and by um, helping protect their innocence. We have an attack on the family that's coming from multiple UN agencies, and we'll just give you a few examples, starting with the World Health Organization, the organization that's supposed to set the health standards for the whole world. Well, they have defined the word sexuality, which will drive what will be taught to children as part of comprehensive sexuality education. And their definition for sexuality encompasses things like gender identities, pleasures, desires, fantasies, eroticisms, sexual orientation, and more. So that's what they're gonna be teaching children about as they teach comprehensive sexuality education. So the World Health Organization also has set the standards for sexuality education for European children. And in their manual for European children, it actually sends children or teaches children as young as zero to four how to touch their body parts for sexual pleasure. And then at age nine, it sends children to International Planned Parenthood Federation to learn about their sexual rights. That's IPPF, which is the mother organization of all the Planned Parenthood entities throughout the world. And what they're gonna learn from IPPF, the children, when they come there, is they're gonna learn that children have a right to have sexual activity at any age, that they have a right to sexual pleasure. And one publication in particular that's very troubling that was passed out at the UN, it's called Healthy, Happy, and Hot, published by International Planned Parenthood Federation, tells youth that are infected with the HIV virus that they don't have to tell their sexual partners that they're infected with HIV. This is a violation of their human rights, it says, and teaches them they have a right to sexual pleasure and how to get sexual pleasure in various ways. Um, this is unconscionable and it's coming from the United Nations. Then you have UNICEF, the agency that's supposed to protect children all across the world that is actually promoting this agenda as well. And they are publish, publishing things against the rights of parents, saying that children, for example, have the right to access sexual and reproductive health services without parental consent so that they can get these kind of um, services as well as comprehensive sexuality education. Well, there's many more UN agencies that are doing um, advancing comprehensive sexuality education, but I'll just give you um, one more example from UNFPA, the Population Fund of the United Nations. They are launching comprehensive sexuality education programs all around the world, and they've even created a, a phone app that children can use called TuneMe, where it teaches children how to consent to sexual acts um, things about oral and anal sex and all sorts of things, again, coming from the United Nations, from UNFPA. So let's move from the UN and talk about uh, the national level at the United State, in the United States. For example, under the Obama administration, the uh, US government started using your tax dollars, 101 million US tax dollars every year, and it continues under the Trump administration to fund comprehensive sexuality education programs. And one program in particular that's been funded in many states, as an example, is called Making a Difference. It's been funded in my state of Arizona, and it has an activity sheet that says, what is abstinence? How do I express my sexual feelings? And then it goes on to give the answers that students might come up with, which includes all sorts of sexual acts, promoting them as abstinence. 
very, very troubling. So an action item you can do right now to protect children in your state is you can go to um, stopcse.org where you can access something called the USA CSE map. You can click on your state profile, which will give you a list of all the sex education laws related to your rights as parents and to the curriculum. But it will also give you a chart with all the federally funded programs in your state. You can click on them, learn what's in them, and then you will know what you have to do, uh, which programs to target in your state for removal. Another action item at the state level that you can take is there's a book that's in many of the school libraries. It's called Perfectly Normal. It's promoted by Planned Parenthood for children as young as age 10. And it has graphic pictures of children engaging in various sex acts. And that's something that needs to be removed from every library, every school library in the United States. Then another action item that you can do is just yesterday, and this is very exciting that this happened at the federal level, um, Congressman LaMalfa introduced two bills, um, and they are the, to prevent gender experimentation with surgeries and puberty blockers on children, to make it um, illegal to do this for, on a child of minor age, and also to stop federal, federal funding for these processes. So you can do something right now on that issue to make sure that they, these um, bills get more traction. You can go to a website, and we'll be sending you all of these websites later. That's transgenderissues.org. You click on the button there, and you'll have the contacts of those who are um, co-sponsoring this legislation, and they're gonna come under attack because this is a highly controversial issue. In fact, in California right now, it's mandated by law that every child must receive teaching on comprehensive sexuality, I'm sorry, on gender identity and sexual orientation. And so um, Congressman LaMalfa is from California, and this, these two bills that he's put forward are to try to raise awareness of how this radical gender ideology and the actions that encompass it with um, mutilating body parts of children and giving them dangerous cross-sex hormones and surgeries should be stopped. So again, you can go to transgenderissues.org and find the context and send these representatives in Congress your thank you and your support because they're really going to need it. Um, finally, another action step you can take is you can go to stopcse.org and there are lots of tools there. You can find the Defender's Toolkit. And the first tool you'll find in that Defender's Toolkit is a step-by-step -step action plan on what you can do to stop comprehensive sexuality education programs in your state. You can also click on um, a tool called the Tsunami Strategy, which will give you strategies and steps that you can take either to stop CSC in your state at a local school board meeting, uh, you know, or, or to stop a law or pass a law at the state level. Um, lots of good things, lots of good tools. And then finally, the last tool that we'll tell you about is you can go to our website as well at familywatch.org and sign up to get updates on all of these issues so that you can be equipped to protect children at the international, national, state, and local level. We hope that you will um, take the suggestions that you've already heard from the previous speakers and some of the actions that we're suggesting because together, 
we can and will protect children. Thank you so much, Sharon. That was an incredible uh, information and thank you for your powerful work at many levels. So we are starting to receive audience questions. And before I turn to those audience questions, I'm just going to ask um, all the speakers if you want to elaborate on any of the actions that you have seen um, citizens or activists um, take that have been effective in stopping these efforts to sexualize children through school curriculum and policies. Emily, um, I'd love to respond to that. Um, I'm a co-chair of something called the Protect Child Health Coalition. It has a website at protectchildhealth.org, and it's a network of people working in all, all the states in the United States to stop comprehensive sexuality education. And there are numerous examples how mothers, teachers, school board members, religious leaders who are part of this coalition have simply gone to state school board meetings or state hearings and have been able to stop comprehensive sexuality education in its tracks. Because once you reveal what's in these programs, the majority of people are going to object. The majority of people on both sides of the you know, liberal and conservative spectrum usually will hold that children should not be engaging in sexual behavior. So um, there's lots of examples that we can share. If I could uh, weigh in and kind of echo what Sharon just said with a couple of examples from here in Massachusetts. Um, we had a mom who found out, again, after the fact, which is usually the case, that her high school daughter uh, had been shown a video in class that was extremely disturbing and really offensive, particularly to people of faith, uh, you know, in this sexual context. And so she found it on YouTube, showed it to some of the other mothers who da whose daughters were in the class and who had complained, and they went to the principal's office, the four of them, showed him the video, explained why it was wildly inappropriate and unhelpful and disturbing and offensive, and the principal relented and said, okay, we're going to take that uh, video out of, out of the class. Um, so that proves that you, if you know the, the specifics um, of what's, like Sharon said, of what's in these curricula, what's in these classes being taught, and then you can show that to the people who are accountable, uh, you can make a difference. So knowledge definitely is power in this, uh, in this fight. Yeah, and I just, I would just add, it brings to mind, um, there was a huge fight in the Tucson School District in my state of Arizona. And there's a woman by the name of Bernadette Gruber who was on the sex education committee, but she was just a parent trying to make sure they adopted good sex education. And as they started to try to adopt a really, really bad program, she contacted us and said, what, what can I do? I've never seen one person accomplish more than Bernadette Gruber. She started, she started using some of our sample PowerPoints and going to all the different churches, giving presentations. She mobilized over a thousand people to show up at the school board meetings to oppose this comprehensive sexuality education. And in particular, she mobilized the Hispanic community in, in her area who had never been active on any issues before. But when they saw what was going to be adopted in this curriculum, um, you know, amazing things happened and they were able to show up multiple times and, and win um, their policy objectives in, in a number of their um, the hearings that were held over the sex education. Excellent. I also want to point out a parent resource guide 
This is the National Parent Resource Guide for parents on responding to transgender issues. The Heritage Foundation started this guide along with several other organizations, and it is available for free on the internet at genderresourceguide.com. It's also in our resources page that is on the summit page. And now we have a question to all panelists, which is what is motivating these organizations to include hypersexualized content in curriculum? I'd be happy to respond to that. And I wish I had had more time because I would have walked you through how International Planned Parenthood and their 65,000 service points in 170 countries have infiltrated with their philosophy all the UN agencies, um, even our federal school curriculum that's being funded with that $101 million is coming to every state. And they have a financial motive to sexualize children. If they can sexualize children, then the children are going to, well, many of these CSE programs actually even refer children to their clinics at the end of the program. So their children are going to need condoms, contraception, abortions. We know Planned Parenthood has been caught even selling aborted body parts. They're now even starting to provide um, access to hormones for um, trying to appear like the um, opposite sex. And so this is a very lucrative business and comprehensive sexuality education is their marketing plan and it's brilliant, it's working. Compre um, Planned Parenthood in the United States is the largest provider of comprehensive sexuality education and worldwide the um, international organization as well. Thanks, Sharon. Um, now, go ahead. Could I add, uh, in, in addition to that, um, I think particularly uh, within the context that I focused on kind of like how the civil rights law is being used for this, is that you have a lot of true believers. Um, at the activist level, um, you have a lot of people who really do believe that the gender unicorn um, is the truth about humanity. And so they think that anyone who's not on board with the gender unicorn is violating human rights, violating civil rights. And so that's what motivates them. And then I think there's a certain class of politicians who just haven't thought about this at all, but they want to be woke. They want to be on the right side of history. They say something like, well, I supported gay rights. I have to support transgender rights. I supported the original civil rights movement supported the gay rights, civil rights movement, and now transgender rights are the civil rights issue of our time. I don't think Joe Biden has thought for two minutes about what's happening to children. I don't think he's thought at all about puberty blocking drugs or cross-sex hormones. He's, I don't think he's a true believer. I think he's opportunistic, and he thinks that this is what he needs to do to please his base. And so I think you have a, a mix between the true believer activist and the kind of complacent politician um, who just needs to do uh, whatever, you know, the political winds are blowing. Uh, and I think that's a really, really toxic combination. And that's what we're up against. Emily, and one last point on that. I've heard the uh, sponsor of sex ed mandate legislation here in Massachusetts at the state house testify that they don't want to have to talk about sex and the birds and the bees with their kids. They're happy to offload that to the public schools. So part of this is just kind of the cowardice or fear that a lot of parents have, uh, you know, and they want to sort of subcontract this out. And I get that. That's real. I talk about these things for a living. My young kids had overheard the name of a particular sex act and asked me what it was as I was in the bed one night. 
you know, that's uh, that's scary stuff. But, you know, parents have to take control uh, of this issue with their kids and not be afraid to discuss it at home. Emily, Thank you, might, might I add two more reasons? Um, one of the reasons is because many lies are told about comprehensive sexuality education. People are told that it will prevent teen pregnancies, it'll stop, you know, gender violence, it will prevent STDs, and they're given false studies. And I'm really grateful that we're going to hear from Irene Erickson later to show what the research really shows with regard to comprehensive sexuality education. But people are being told that this is the only answer to protect children, and that's just completely a lie. It's not true. And we've analyzed many, many sexuality education programs and we've identified that this is not just about sex. It's a whole world ideology that they're indoctrinating children with. We, they they want to change all the gender and sexual norms of society. And it's the number one tool to promote abortion to children so that they'll advocate for it after they've been through these programs. So there's multiple, multiple reasons. Thank you. We have a follow-up question for Ryan, which is about civil rights law. What effect could civil rights law have on private, including religious schools? How could it potentially affect their policies and could it have any impact on their curriculum? Oh, gr great question, because this is a very, uh, uh, very real legitimate concern. Um, so let me mention a couple of things. Um, first is that if the Equality Act were to become law, um, there are various provisions there that could impact private parochial religious schools. Um, so I mentioned that Title IV of the Civil Rights Act deals with public education. Title II deals with public accommodations. Uh, and it's an open question with the uh, language of the Equality Act whether or not um, uh, faith-based schools that um, allow uh, the general public to send their kids there would now be classified as public accommodations and therefore regulated under uh, the Equality Act. Um, and that's regardless of whether or not they receive any government money, right? If you if you classify your local Catholic school as a public accommodation, then it will be subject uh, to this law. There are two other ways that um, religious schools could be impacted, and that's through Title VI, which is the general funding uh, provision of the Civil Rights Act, and through Title IX of the Education Amendments. Uh, so again, if sex now means SOGI, and you receive any funding, it could be school lunch funding. It could be a voucher program if you have this at the state level, um, the school lunch program through the federal level. Then the government can reg regulate you through uh, the funding mechanism. Uh, and then the, everything that I mentioned in my earlier remarks about what the campus policies would be, uh, what sorts of instruction is necessary to prevent a hostile learning environment, the, the sort of indoctrination, um, that we could see that applied uh, to private uh, faith-based schools as well. So it's a very real concern. This isn't just about public schools. My bottom line, though, is that we should care about both. Uh, we should care about children, whether they're attending a public school or a private school, a secular school or a school, that all children um, have the right to grow up without their, uh, um, their, their human ecology, the environment in which they live being corrupted, so that their own beliefs and behaviors with respect to their sexuality would be corrupted. Right? They, they should have the space and the freedom to develop free from um, adults kind of um, messing with their own thinking and their own behaviors. Thank you, Ryan. The next question is, 
As Andrew pointed out, our children can be the most effective advocates for themselves. What tools can we give our children to speak up for themselves to stop this objectionable content? Well, I mean, one thing is just to encourage your kids to talk to you about what they see and hear in school. I mean, so many things that we've been able to work on have come to light because kids will come home and tell their parents they weren't comfortable with something that was discussed or brought up in class. So it's important to keep that dialogue open with your kids for sure. And also, you know, on the on the pronouns issue or other things like that, um, it's important for parents to say to their kids, look, this is what we believe in our home. This is what we expect uh, you to do and what we expect you not to do. And to again, really, you have to engage in these issues. So you have to do it at a much earlier age than you would like, but that's the reality of living in 21st century America. So parents should take a real degree of ownership uh, over their children's interactions in these areas. I'll just mention one um, curriculum that, that I've recently become um, aware of it, and it's an explicitly uh, Christian curriculum. So um, you know, the hope would be that other faith traditions would uh, create curriculum um, as well, and maybe um, you know a purely kind of secular, uh, scientific, philosophical curriculum. But this is meant to be something. Uh, it's called Rooted, and it's through um, a press called Rua Woods, and they're taking the theology of the body, John Paul II's theology of the body, and making it accessible K through 12. Um, and they just recently, I'm going to be uh, speaking for them soon, and they, they sent me, this is like grade three, they have an entire box from kindergarten up through high school. And it's a, it's a curriculum for the students and for the parents and for the teachers. Um, so if you're thinking, you know, what's an age-appropriate way to talk to a second grader about their body and about their sexuality? What's an age-appropriate way to talk to an eighth grader about this? Um, there's a team of uh, educators working with and theologians who have put together um, some materials to help you. Uh, and, and I think that as we enter uh, a culture that's more and more hostile to traditional American beliefs on this, uh, we're going to need as parents the support so that then we can do a better job in raising our children. And so this is one uh, source that I would recommend to you. It's, it's called um, the Rooted Theology of the Body Curriculum through Rua Woods. Yes, and Emily, may I add, you know, I have a daughter that was really struggling. She's like, I'm the only one who believes this way. All of my friends are against all the things that we stand for. You know, what do I do? So we just started some conversations once a week with her, and she's been recruiting more friends. And they brainstormed, and they said, we want to start an empowered youth coalition. And I would, just as a timely question, because I was just on a, a Zoom call yesterday with some of the top leaders in Mexico of the pro-family, pro-life movement, and I mentioned this empowered youth coalition and they said we're on it let's do it let's 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 launch this co coalition worldwide we have youth that need to be connected to other youth who are who want to stand for these issues but don't know how so we have envisioned a major worldwide conference for youth um, and to create and launch a coalition worldwide people from all different faiths coming together the youth and there's power when they see other youth of other faiths in other countries, in other cultures, standing up for these issues. And we could empower, we could come together, all the organizations that are sponsoring this conference could be a part of that as well. And so we'll be sending out more information on that. Because children, again, it's so confusing to them. They're being told so many lies and they need our support and help. Sorry, I wanted to echo what Ryan said. There are some very good resources out there for parents 
to educate their kids on this issues. There's some books that I've read with my kids. Yeah, I talk about this stuff for a living, but it's nice to have a script you can trust uh, with tasteful pictures that you can walk through, whether, whether it's with your four-year-old daughter or your 16-year-old son. There's also something called Passport to Purity, which is uh, to listen to some audio files and start some discussions. Um, so there are definitely some resources to make it easier than just trying to sit down and start a, a talk uh, by yourself. So maybe we can get some of those links up on the uh, website at some point. Yes, thank you. We have um, another question, two related questions. First, as a parent, what are your rights in terms of um, getting access to the school curriculum? Does the school have to show the parents the curriculum? And second, a related question, can school board members do anything to stop the introduction of this curriculum, particularly in online curriculum? Well, in Massachusetts, I can answer that question. Parents uh, have the right to review curricula at the school. By law, Massachusetts schools have to make it, quote, reasonably available. Uh, now, that can be interpreted various ways and a lot of times frankly schools kind of play hide the ball with parents um so in massachusetts we've actually gone to through my organization um issuing public records requests every school in the commonwealth so that they are required by law to answer that and give us the the materials just the names of materials so then we can go through them and let parents know so i mean the, the short answer is yes parents typically have a right to review the curricula but it may mean you have to go to the school at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday and sit in a little office and go through it page by page yourself. But it's worth doing, and it's better if you do it in community with other parents that spread that load and support each other. Emily, each state is different. It has different laws regarding what parents can and can't do and what the school has to do as far as being transparent with the sex ed curriculum, how it's developed. And so I would encourage people to go again to stopcse.org and click on the USA map click on their state profile. Immediately, you'll see a list of all the laws governing your rights as parents related to curriculum, sex education, parental rights, and that can be a guide for you. And one of the things that needs to happen in many states is where the laws aren't clear, we need to pass laws that are more clear and demand that parents have the right because the biggest kept, the best kept secret in every state is what's actually being taught to the children because they know if parents find out, they're gonna go crazy and they're gonna to try to stop it. So there was one strategy that was used in Tucson, it's used in, in different countries across the world, we call it a, a framework strategy, where they'll, they'll introduce a framework that's an outline of what they're gonna teach, but it's not the actual curriculum. And in the outline, everything sounds beautiful, nice, and non-controversial but you don't know what the curriculum is that's attached to it. So legislatures will pass these frameworks, parents will accept it, school boards will adopt it. So the number one rule in stopping these programs is to demand to see the program. That's the first thing that we tell parents, you have to demand that. Yes, and I just wanna refer again to this free parent resource guide. In the back of this guide in the appendix, it has very useful documents for parents on how they can go to their school and ask for things like the curriculum and their policies. It explains what your rights are 
and it gives you forms to use and even talking points. So again, this is available for free at genderresourceguide.com. Any comment on the question about what can a school board member do, and especially in regard to the ongoing concerns about this being not only in books, but in online curricula? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to respond to that. We have several school board members in different states that are part of the Protect Child Health Coalition, and they've told us things that they've been able to do as school board members, raising awareness of the curriculum, making sure that there's fair debate, that both sides get heard, that they don't fudge on the rules and manipulate the process that the school boards must follow. Um, they've been some of the best um, tools that we have for stopping CSC in their own states. Excellent. Well, thanks to each one of you for the important information that you provided in this panel. Welcome back to our next panel, Exposing Sexual Content in Recommended Curricula and Its Failure to Meet Legal Standards. And now I would like to invite my colleague, Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, to join us along with the panelists to begin the next panel on exposing sexual content in recommended curricula. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you, Emily. And as the rest of our panelists join us, I'd like to thank everyone for being with us this morning for session two of our event today in the Protecting Children in Education Summit. The title of our session now is Exposing Sexual Content in Recommended Curricula and Its Failures to Meet Legal Standards. It's my pleasure to introduce the three panelists who will be joining us now. And I'll introduce them in the order in which that they will begin uh, speaking. So first, Mary Hassan, who is with the Catholic Women's Forum at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, will be speaking first. She'll be followed by Monica Klein, president of It Takes a Family. And then finally, Irene Erickson, who is from the Institute for Research and Evaluation. So thank you again. We have a great list of attendees. I can see the size of our audience. And so very pleased now to turn this over to Mary. So Mary, if you would. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, and I'm grateful to Heritage for hosting this program. I think it is just essential. So we're going to start first with a slide. Uh, this, this panel is on sexual content, but I want to back up for a second and point out one of the real problems going on in the school is the promotion of gender ideology, which is a radically different vision of the human person where the human person is fractured. There's no unity between the mind and the body or the body and the soul. And instead we see this, this image of the person and this image of the gender-bred person, or sometimes you see the, the gender unicorn, gender elephant. Note that all these different dimensions need not align. That The person is, is just fractured into all these different parts. So I call your attention in particular to two things. One, gender identity. In this vision of the person, the person's identity is defined by feelings, their sense of who they are. And that's what, what gender identity is defined as. It could be your sense of being male, female, neither, both, or something else. But that predominates over your bodily reality. And so the other thing I point you to is the description there of anatomical sex, where it talks about maleness and femaleness, as if there's no actual truth to the body. 
that's fixed. It's, there's the suggestion that even our sex is not something clearly defined as male or female. So what difference does this make? Well, we're seeing a rise in the number of children who are identifying as transgender or who are expressing confusion about their identity. In other words, this idea that there's a separation between their feelings and their body or a mismatch is really taking hold. And it used to be that there were always a small percentage of children who would have some confusion about their identity. And yet the standard procedure was to either wait it out because when puberty would arrive, that flood of hormones would resolve much of that confusion, or to delve into some sort of uh, therapy with the family to, to try to explore why. What's the reason why this child is rejecting their bodily identity? Are there other wounds that need to be healed? And when those two approaches were, were taken, 85, 90% of children would resolve those confused feelings by puberty. That's called desistance. What we're seeing now is a different approach. It's called the gender affirmative approach or gender affirming therapy or care. And that takes the approach that when a child expresses a gender identity, this feeling-based sense of who they are, that's at odds with their body, that the adults are supposed to respond with a no questions asked response and to just simply affirm that identity as true. And that puts the child on the fast track to a, a lifelong dependency on medicine and just confusion, mental health issues, because it starts with social transition, which is just changing your hair, your name, your pronouns, but then it quickly moves to the, for younger children to puberty blockers so that their body literally is put into, it used to be called a pause, but it's, it's, it's not fully reversible. It, it has damage to the, the brain, the bone structure, and, and just to the child's maturity. This is what the body's supposed to do. So the puberty blockers follow. And then from there, after uh, within a few years, the child is put on cross-sex hormones. So all this time they're living as if they are the opposite sex or some other identity. But when you combine puberty blockers with cross-sex hormones, in other words, you have a child with immature sexual function, and then you add cross-sex hormones, you sterilize that child for life. So this moving sidewalk, this, this fast track to transition through gender affirmation is a, a huge thing. It's, it's so consequential in a child's life, and yet it's, it's being promoted through our schools. And so that's, that's what we're seeing, that schools are promoting this idea of affirming any identity expressed by a young child, no questions asked, and then proceeding to socially transition the child, even without parental consent, as you heard from, from Luke's uh, video. So how does this affect the curriculum? Let's talk in particular about that. What are you looking for in terms of schools? Well, this ideology, this view of the person comes in through specific courses for example, five states uh, require LGBT history to be taught, but that's not the primary route. It comes in first and foremost through bullying, anti-bullying curricula, uh, through inclusivity uh, assemblies and, and programs. In other words, those become the excuses to teach children this new vocabulary about who they are and to encourage them to explore. We also see this coming in to the schools through uh, what I call an infusion, an infused curriculum, almost like an overlay, where the teachers go to professional development, they learn these principles, and they infuse it into a variety of courses. 
chief among them, health education, where now we're seeing something called puberty or gender-inclusive puberty education, where they literally erase the idea of male-female sexual difference, and it's all about body disembodied from the person. We're also seeing it in soft curriculum. Many, many schools have now gone to digital-only um, materials or curriculum where parents are not able to monitor very well and teachers are turning to all sorts of activist organizations for um, specific additional curricula resources and so that digital curriculum comes in outside of the normal process of approving curriculum materials and that's something that you have a right to know about but is, is routinely not uh, given to, to parents. And then finally, we see this in just the school culture. You know, the school culture of the, of the average public school celebrates anywhere from, from three to 10 to 12 uh, specific LGBT kinds of, of events or um, holidays or, or things like that that engage the children, draws those not suffering from confusion, with the idea that they should be allies, that they need to embrace this regardless of what they are taught at home. So these things have a huge impact, and I think we can probably talk in the um, uh, Q&A about ways to take action besides you know, exposing exactly what's being taught to understand that you have a right to know and that you as, as parents and activists are, have to be the ones to bring this to light because the schools, unfortunately, are not doing that of their own accord. So with that, we'll move on to the next. Thank you, Mary. Um, I think those, that point of transparency, I think, is one that will uh, come up later in the, in the questions, I can see already. And I uh, appreciate the use of your term, consequential, there, I think, is always something that we need to think about when we're talking about young children. Um, so with that, uh, thank you very much, Mary. And so we'll move uh, to Monica, if you'd like to take it from here. Hi there, my name is Monica Leal Klein and I am the founder of It Takes a Family. And uh, my goal is to educate and equip parents uh, to be the leading voice in their children's lives regarding marriage, sex, identity, and healthy relationships. But that wasn't always my story. I'm actually a former comprehensive sex educator of over 10 years. My first job was in HIV prevention. I worked for a gay organization. And then shortly after being hired, I was invited by Planned Parenthood to come over to their clinic and be mentored by their director of sex education. And so today what I wanna share with you for the next five minutes is really what is that philosophy behind, uh, that is really the foundation of Planned Parenthood's comprehensive sex education, the, the leading provider of comprehensive sex education in, in really, I think, the nation and the world. And I think the first thing I wanna mention is that they have a very distorted view of our children and of humanity and of sex. And uh, I want to illustrate that with a couple of quotes. My mentor, who taught me how to teach comprehensive sex education to school-aged children at Planned Parenthood, um, this is what she said to me. She said, "When you, Monica, when you walk into a room of school-aged children, um, imagine that they've done anything and everything when it comes to sex, and if they haven't, they will. And it's your job as a comprehensive sex educator to teach them about every sexual practice and to teach them how to use condoms and lubrication to reduce their risk, and then teach them how to get to the clinic to get treatment and to have abortions. Now, when she told me the stories of these young girls coming into the clinic as young as 10, 
with sexually transmitted diseases, getting abortions, and even to the point of foreign objects in their bodies. Um, I, my first reaction was, you've convinced me, how do I teach these girls not to have sex? Because they were so young. Um, but she let me know that it was very judging of me and others to tell a young person that they should not be having sex and that our job was to meet them where they're at, which is their choice to be sexually active, and to basically leave them there by giving them risk reduction education and referring them to Planned Parenthood. Now, I believed her at that, uh, I was, it was 1996, I was pretty young, right out of college um, anyway, but I, I, uh, I believed her because, hey, they received government funding, Title X funding. They're the experts, so I trusted her. But I wanna illustrate another quote from a Planned Parenthood nurse. Um, after becoming an HIV educator over my 10 years, I rose up the ranks and eventually became the Title X training manager for the states of Texas and New Mexico. And as I was training Planned Parenthood in Corpus Christi, Texas, I was talking to them about human trafficking and the need to report cases of human trafficking. And I knew that there were many cases of statutory rape, human trafficking in Planned Parenthood clinics because my experience in my work with them was that they always told me that they, um, you know, back then they used the word pimp. Uh, they were very proud that they provided services to pimps and their girls. Um, and so, and then many times they also let me know that young girls that they knew were having sex with adult men were coming in and they were still providing them with services and not reporting it. So here I was ready to teach them about plus human plus. trafficking to correct what they had been doing. What's that? Um, what I found is that they did not um, respond the way I thought they were going to. And so I asked them, why do you refuse to take this seriously and report cases of statutory rape, which is now human trafficking? This is in 2009. And uh, one of the nurses raised her hand and she said, honey, if she's not having sex with this man this month, she'll be having sex with another one next month. And they began to try to school me and tell me that these young girls wanted to be sexually active. They wanted to have sex with adult men. Uh, they went even as far as saying that she was empowered for having sex with a more experienced person who could pleasure her. Um, that was the year that I decided to quit. And that's when I knew that I did not belong there. Um, and so again, wanna emphasize, this is a very distorted view of sex, humanity, and very distorted view of our children. What is their goal? Their goal is to have a customer for life. They are a business. Um, so they, they need very much so to sexualize a young generation, sexualize the children through comprehensive sex education, teach them how to dehumanize themselves and others through the act of sex, and make them dependent on needing to use their services, contraceptives, uh, uh, testing, and abortion. And so what you need to understand is that comprehensive sex education is like Planned Parenthood's marketing tool or their vehicle. They need comprehensive sex education so that they can mold that child, sexualize them to become um, sexually active in school age years. And then that be, uh, they then dehumanize themselves through that act. It's a natural next step to dehumanize the preborn child. So then it seems as though having an abortion is not that big of a deal to them anymore because it's all been normalized. There's also a huge move uh, to normalize sexually transmitted because they know that when people are having sex um, like this and treating it like a recreational activity, having multiple partners, they will become infected. And so instead of, um, you know, 
realizing and being able to say this is not healthy to voluntarily be involved in a behavior that puts you at risk for disease, they're now saying STDs, getting infected is totally normal. Everyone has an STD, not a big deal. Um, so they're really normalizing school-age sex, they're normalizing disease, and they're normalizing uh, ending the life of a child through abortion. Now, another point that I want to make is that in order to be able to reach their goals, they need to eliminate obstacles. They meaning Planned Parenthood. So what obstacles do, do, do uh, Planned Parenthood needs to remove? Uh, the number one obstacle for Planned Parenthood is the parent. Um, you know why? Parents are powerful. Parents are the key to protecting children and creating that barrier between anything that's dangerous and their child. This is why I created It Takes a Family, because the one thing that Planned Parenthood always emphasized to me is that parents, and this is a quote from them, parents are a barrier to services. Parents are a barrier to their services. As soon as a parent gets involved in their child's life, when they know that they're getting services at a Planned Parenthood, that parent usually, they observed, would then take over uh, as they should and start to, you know, have that authority over their child and protect them, and Planned Parenthood would never see that child again. So they need to eliminate the parent. And they're getting a lot of support to do this, as you heard earlier, about how the schools are not telling parents about all kinds of things, from gender identity to sexuality. Um, but they are also getting a lot of support from the CDC because they have this, what they call privacy and confidentiality for teen health, which really justifies these clinics to then make sure that parents are not aware of the health care that their children need or are getting. Um, so they are, you know, there are several articles on the CDC that says this, that parents are an obstacle for teens to get their health care. And so they've created these very, very nice, uh, clever language of privacy and confidentiality for teens. Um, there's also, if you've noticed, when you take your child to a general practitioner, they might say, OK, well, we're going to meet with your child by themselves or you wait here. There is no law that says that you have to do that. That, again, is just part of this uh, indoctrination to make parents believe that they're not supposed to be involved uh, in their child's health care and that somehow their child needs privacy away from the parent. And that is not correct. Um, so what is their other goal is really what they're doing through all of this is redefining humanity, redefining sexuality, redefining gender, redefining marriage, redefining family. Uh, if you notice a lot of this, uh, when you even talk about Black Lives Matter, you know, they're, they've made a stance that the nuclear family is bad. Um, and so a lot of this has to do with redefining all of those things. And so when you look at their curriculum, when you look at their philosophy and their practices, what you see is that there are no moral absolutes and there are no biological absolutes. They ignore all of those things. Everything is relative. Uh, so they really do practice secular humanism in that regard. Um, so um, I'm sure that you have made probably have a lot of questions for me and I look forward to that. But thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. Klein, for those uh, uh, for those comments and especially your story. I mean, I think that's a uh, definitely a sobering, I think, uh, me message. And I think this uh, issue of, of privacy and uh, the role of parents is, is already coming up 
in some of the questions that we're getting already. So uh, we're looking forward to getting to those in just a minute. So it's my pleasure now. We'll turn to uh, Irene as our last speaker. And just a reminder for those of us who are uh, on the call and who have joined us and, and even for our speakers, if you could mute, your, mute yourselves uh, when you're not speaking and that'll keep us from getting some feedback while uh, we have our speakers. So thank you and, and Irene, I will turn it to you. And then uh, once you are finished, we'll uh, come back on together and we'll have uh, some time for uh, questions and answers. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. You may be familiar with two claims made by advocates for comprehensive sex education. First, that teenage sex can be practiced safely. And second, that research shows that comprehensive sex education is proven effective and abstinence education doesn't work. Today, I'm going to demonstrate for you that the research does not support they either of these claims. First slide, please. Okay, I represent the Institute for Research and Evaluation and we'll be sharing findings from our recently published study, re-examining the evidence for comprehensive sex education in schools. Next slide. <clears throat> First, research shows teenage sex is always a risky behavior. Next slide. <clears throat> for example, contraception provides incomplete protection for teens having sex. Even consistent condom use provides only partial protection from STDs. In addition, studies show one in six new condom users experiences a pregnancy within one year, and one in 11 women using birth control pills becomes pregnant. In addition, studies show teen condom use has declined and STD rates are increasing, despite increased uh, federal funding for CSE over the past decade and condoms do not prevent the higher rates of emotional harm and dating violence caused by teenage sex, especially for girls. Next slide. Science also shows the immature teenage brain is not equipped to master safer sex risk reduction skills. Regions of the brain that control impulsiveness and judgment are not fully developed until the early to mid-20s. This means the teenage brain is not well-equipped for performing consistent correct condom use and the condom user error and failure are common. Um, finally, the teenage brain is not developmentally suited for negotiating consent to have sex. Next slide. Regarding program effectiveness, science shows that when measured by credible criteria derived from the science of prevention research, school-based comprehensive sex education, or CSE, shows little evidence of effectiveness. In fact, there appears to be more evidence of harm than effectiveness for CSE in schools, and the evidence for abstinence education appears to be better. Next slide. Our recent study reviewed 120 of the strongest, most up-to-date studies of school-based sex education worldwide. Spanning 30 years of research, studies vetted for adequate scientific quality by either the UN, CDC, or the Health Department of Health and Human Services, thus ensuring a credible database. Next slide. Looking at the results for sex education in U.S. schools, we found that only three out of 60 CSE studies found evidence of effectiveness defined as improvement in teen abstinence, condom use, pregnancy, or STDs for the target population, not just a subgroup, lasting at least 12 months after the program and without other negative or harmful program effects. Um, seven, on the other hand, seven out of these same 60 CSE studies 
found evidence of harmful CSE impact, increased sexual risk behavior, pregnancy, or STDs. Note that there was more evidence of harm by CSE, seven studies, than evidence of effectiveness, three studies. By comparison, the evidence for abstinence education looks better. Seven out of 17 studies found effectiveness, improvement in teen abstinence lasting 12 months after the program. And only one out of 17 studies found evidence of a harmful program impact. Next slide. Here are four popular CSE programs that have produced significant harmful effects. Yet despite these negative outcomes and in contrary to the recommendations of the field of prevention research, these four programs are listed on the federal teen pregnancy prevention website as programs showing evidence of effectiveness. Next slide. We conclude with three recommendations. First, a cultural norm should be established that sexual activity is a risky behavior not suitable for children and adolescents. Third, or second, programs that do not meet a scientifically credible definition of effectiveness should not be labeled as evidence-based, especially those programs that have had harmful impact. And third, given the lack of success shown by school-based CSE after 30 years of research, a new prevention strategy is needed to replace the failed CSE approach. And I should note that you can get a copy of this presentation by emailing me at iericson.ire at gmail.com. And you can use this in meetings with state legislators or school board members or other policymakers to demonstrate that CSE has not shown effectiveness and is likely doing more harm than good. Thank you. Thank you to Irene and to all of our speakers for joining us. We have a few minutes here for some questions and answers. So uh, why don't we start? And what I will do is I'll read the question. And then so that uh, everyone gets a chance to answer who'd like to, why don't I call um, call our speakers by name and then we can avoid talking over each other if that's, if that's right with you. So the first question that I have here, is there a basis in federal law to challenge our states and schools district policy, which allows schools to transition students, sexuality and gender without parental notice. Um, and by, let me add just a little bit to that and say, if if not in federal law or what, what can be done even outside of that? I mean, what, I think, I think the, the root here is, is what do we have to do um, as a society, as families, as interested parents and teachers. So can we start, uh, Ms. Klein, if you'll, if you'll start, please. I'm actually not familiar with the, the laws for the transgender. I was actually hoping Mary would be the first. <laughs> Jump in. Well, very good. Well, that's fine. So Mary, please. And then Monica, if you, uh, Ms. Klein, if you think of something as, as Mary's speaking, we'll come, we'll come back after we circle through Irene. So, so there are no cases specifically on point that say schools have a right to keep gender identity from the parents or that they have a right to, to move them on towards transition. There have been a couple of cases related to people in the school sexual orientation. Those are different things. But what's happening is the schools are putting this in their policies, saying that students have a right to privacy and confidentiality. And so much of this has been, the, the way has been paved by the approach towards providing contraception and condoms in schools with parental consent. And there is an attempt right now as well to, to more, um, more officially enshrine this under the mature minor doctrine. Uh, but there's, there is a lot of ground here 
to fight this battle because they do not have the law behind them. We parents need to speak up and we need to push back and we need to get legislation put specifically protecting that before they pull the end run and try to get this into the law in other ways. But parents, stand your ground. That's what I would say. Thank you, Mary. Irene. I would just add a couple of things. I'm not an expert in the law either, but I would recommend contacting um, organizations like the Family Research Council and others that are on this program today because they do have legal staff that address these issues all the time. Um, and then also I would say at the local level, attend a school board meeting and, and, and sign up to speak before you go to the meeting and, and address your concerns, which will let others, uh, other parents know and also the press and we'll get maybe perhaps some press. I, I did this uh, uh, years ago about a gay club that was being um, organized at our local high school and we were able to uh, push back on that for a while. So, I had one thing, Jonathan. Um, in Montgomery County, Maryland, this is very similar to the case in Wisconsin. In Montgomery County, Maryland, there is a form that the teachers use when a child says that they are um, expressing a, a transgender identity and they want to transition. There is a form that the teachers use to evaluate how safe those parents are. In other words, they are making a judgment about the parents being safe or unsafe. And on that basis, making some decision about whether they're going to call the parents in about what's happening with their children. There's no notice, no, no nothing, which is why that case in Wisconsin is, it's the first one specifically challenging this kind of effort by the schools, but we need to see a lot of parental pushback and, and more lawsuits, frankly. Right. And I think that that's what we're seeing a lot with Alliance Defending Freedom, which has been, been able to effectively work on that as well. So I, I believe that they probably have some good resources and they may be speaking today as well. Um, it, but yes, I mean, as far as laws goes, I'm not a, an expert in that. It, but it is definitely something to be very concerned about because what we're seeing is that because there's not a law, but yet the schools are making these policies and CDC has these recommendations for privacy and confidentiality for teen health. We're seeing that they're really taking advantage of that, but parents need to know their rights. And I think we can get a lot more information from Family Research Council and Alliance Defending Freedom about those laws and our rights that they cannot do this. Uh, and I want to also, you know, just jump on with what Irene said is that involvement with your school district, that personal relationship that you have with your school board. Um, and then even many times in our community here in Texas, I encourage parents to run for school board. Uh, a, a lot of this is happening because we are not being represented on the school board. We're not represented in the districts and we're not represented on the state level. And we need to become those leaders in our community to ensure that these things are not happening. I would just add that here in Utah, we have every school has what's called a school community council, which is different than the school board and its parental involvement. It's kind of a hybrid between the PTA and the school board. But if you go to one of those meetings and speak and share your concern, then you get more parents aware, which they may not even be aware, and in support and then they can take it you know the school community council to even if they're you know you're not having legal um uh, uh, grounds to stand on if you get popular support that can override you know what they're trying to do so 
Thank you, and, and good comments all around. Um, okay, so we have a question here, uh, and this one is for It Takes a Family. Your story is powerful and you matter. How do I join It Takes a Family? <laughs> well, you can come to uh, my website, ittakesafamily.org, and you can sign up to receive emails, uh, and you can email me directly if you have questions at monica at ittakesafamily.org, uh, and let me know how you'd like to help and be a part of that. Um, I have uh, one of the things that I've been doing is working a lot with some of the younger uh, population and they somehow it, it, I think it's a God thing uh, that, that young people are actually listening to me. And I, I figured I was going to be listened to by mo more, mostly moms, uh, but I have sponsored several um, young adults in college to become sexual risk avoidance specialists. And I think that that's a really great certification to have through Ascend to learn more about sexual risk avoidance, uh, the programs. I mean, these, this is the program that Irene was talking up about being successful. And, and I think when we know more about the two health approaches to these health concerns that we have about our teens, risk reduction and risk avoidance, uh, when you understand what they are, what they stand for and how they're different, then you'll be able to then speak well about these topics with legislators and with your school districts, uh, with your schools and with other people in your community. So um, that's one of the ways that it takes a family has uh, been able to reach out as well as to start educating those young people and have them also be a sounding board wanting to protect children and um, and in the definition for marriage and family and intimacy. Thank you. Those, those comments are great. Um, so let me start with Irene, if I can, for this next question, because I think we've uh, addressed it a little bit already. A lot of questions coming in about how to be active and how to respond. And I think what uh, Irene was just mentioning to us uh, touched on this. So the question is, what can school PTAs do to be proactive in stopping sexual content from entering their school? And so, Irene, you talked about this a little bit, I think, just a moment ago. Can you elaborate or expand a little bit more? Um. Well, it's, it's not really, you know, an area of expertise. I'll give that qualification. I was speaking actually more from my experience as a mother. Um, I think, you know, going, you know, getting involved is the key. Going to the meetings um, ahead of time, calling some people and saying, do you share this concern? Find out who your allies are, you know, first, because there are going to be some people in the PTA and the school community council who are fine with these other, you know, approaches, um, but find out who your allies are and ask people to help you call and get people to come to the meeting. Um, the, the, the school board meeting that I spoke at, I hadn't done that, and there was hardly anyone there to support me, and mm -hmm. I was so nervous that I gripped the podium to support myself. <laughs> And there were there were posters in the back of I shouldn't tell you this because this will dissuade you, but in the back, hate is not a family value, you know, um, mm -hmm. and and I got my name in the paper, you know, but but um, but after that, there was sort of a groundswell of people that rose up and, you know, had I done my homework ahead of time, I could have avoided some of the notoriety just by calling and, and sort of getting, you know, my fellow, you know, friends that I knew, you know, and so that would be something that I would say is this kind of grassroots um, coalition building that many people are so good at in this movement. So, 
Yeah, I want to agree with Marina on that, just having that support from more people, because if you have someone you know who's really strong and conservative and they, and they run for school board, and then they're there all by themselves and they don't have anyone supporting them and at the meetings with them, that uh, it, it makes it very difficult. And so definitely getting allies together to work together. Um, but I think the other thing it, that I thought of as Irene was speaking about this is, you know, when they talk about hate and, and such and inclusivity, it, we can reach a common ground. You know, the CDC actually says that that uh, children who identify with LGBTQ are at even higher risk for disease and sexual violence and not using condoms. Uh, so they are more at risk than their heterosexual peers. And so what I always mention to people is sexual risk avoidance is good for all children, regardless of how they identify, regardless of their family formation, all children deserve the same protection, the same opportunity to health information that protects them physically and emotionally. And so if the CDC is saying that LGBTQ youth are at even higher risk for all of these things, my first reaction is let's protect them as well with sexual risk avoidance. So I really feel like there's some common ground we can find. I, of course, I also know that a big piece of this is indoctrination. Um, but if we are just talking about the health of the children, then sexual risk avoidance provides an amazing opportunity for all children, regardless of their background and regardless of their identity to be protected physically and emotionally. So if I could jump in here, um, I, I think it's a great idea to be involved in the school board, but I would caution parents not to place too much faith in that because unfortunately the school boards are way more responsive to the teachers unions and to the sort of the, the higher up apparatuses in terms of, of um, the state organizations and, and all those things. But where you can make a difference is in exposing what's happening, because when these schools undertake things like not telling parents that they're socially transitioning a child or uh, bringing in an explicit um, comprehensive sexuality education curriculum, they do not want parents to know. The average parent is very busy. So one of the best things you can do is set up a network of parents and monitor and then expose. And that's what I, the Arlington Parents Council does a tremendous job. But what it does is it puts the school um, school folks on notice that they're being it, parents care and they're going to find out what their kids are, are exposed to. And it also helps you find the allies within the school system, because we know there are some great teachers, principals, administrators, uh, families who are involved, who many of whom are, are silenced and who don't know who their allies are. If you make it clear that you're about giving parents knowledge. Everyone should be in favor of transparency, knowledge, right? And accountability. So if you make that known and you start bringing these things to light and expanding that parent network within within the schools, you will find some good allies, which means you will find more information. And as I said, the schools are very much attuned to bad publicity. And the good thing is there is good media out there now. So you can bring these stories to light but you can also just disseminate what you find among the parent groups that you have. And that, that can operate as a good check. The other thing is use FOIA. Find out who for professional development. Find out who, you know, who are the organizations that are, are being paid to advise on the curriculum or advise on the, you know, the comprehensive sex ed. Find that out and again, publicize that. So information is your best friend, but they're not going to, they're not going to volunteer it you have to go and, and look for it and then publicize it. 
Thank you, Mary. And I'd like to, to pose the next question to you. Um, we have a, and, and thank you for bringing up this issue of school boards. Actually, I should mention that we've had a couple of comments here uh, asking about getting involved with a local school board and the significance. Um, but let me ask this one to you. So this question asks, um, so how can parents defend themselves if or when a teacher or doctor reports them to an agency such as CPS or Child Protective Services? And, and if there are examples that you know of, um, if you can you know, elaborate on those a little bit, uh, please. So Mary, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, unfortunately, there are cases. It oftentimes will involve a situation where the parents are separated or there's a divorce. And so you have parental disagreement about the course of action a child should take. So some of these cases we've seen, you'll have a child who declares a transgender identity. One parent supportive, one is not. And then it's very difficult. The courts, unfortunately, are, are more and more sympathetic um, to the, the ones promoting transition because they have that gloss of respectability saying it's been endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's been endorsed by Endocrine Society and all this stuff, which you should know is not true in this sense. The American Academy of Pediatrics report that, that promoted transitioning kids or supporting kids in transition was written by one activist approved by a small committee and then put out under the name of, of the organization. It's not like 60,000 pediatricians said, this is a good idea. They did not. So you have to challenge those things. So so here's what I would say is um, it's important to, to um, stay close to your kids, know what's going on, find your allies. If you get into legal trouble, you need a, you need a good lawyer. You, it, you have to fight it with the best tools that you have. You know, whether it's there's First Liberty, there's um, ADF, there's Beckett, there's there's all sorts of good organizations that will help you. But I think the big thing is to be on top of it and to to get in there early, but also let the school know you're a watchful parent and that you care and then say, how can I help? What committees can I serve on? Can I serve on the committee that's that's reviewing the curriculum? You know, and, and what is the process for for being part of that? So it's not just the school board, it's getting down into what's happening in the school and all those other mechanisms that allow you an opportunity to have input or to help shield and protect children. Great, I see uh, Emily has joined us. So Emily, I'll turn it to you. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, and thank you to all of our panelists for providing not only excellent information, but very encouraging stories. Uh, so to close today's summit, I want to just reiterate what's been said already by many of the panelists. There are steps that interested citizens can take. First of all, learn what is going on in schools. Learn about your rights. Second, network. And then third, speak up. So the message of this summit is clear. Children should be protected from early sexualization and from indoctrination. Parents should be involved in all important decisions in their child's life, particularly in education. We hope that the resources that we provided to you today, both through the talks and through the resource page, will equip you. But most importantly, contact one of the organizations in the Protecting Children Coalition. The reason why we decided to work together is because the efforts to sexualize children through education are happening at many levels, at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, and even at the international level. And that's why we have partnered together with organizations that work at the United Nations, in Congress, in the state legislatures, and in the local school boards. 
So please contact one of our partner organizations to make sure that you are networked with others because there are so many people like you around the world, in America, in your states, and in your local neighborhoods who care about children and want to protect their emotional, mental, and physical well-being. So thank you again for joining us today and please stay in touch.